Coming up next, more like to spill a bowl of curds. <laughs> Got it. Or to flush a bowl of <laughs> curds. <laughs> curds, yeah. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to The Booketing. My name is Nathan Roberts and I'm your humble and obedient host. That's Brandon right there. He's a scholar who's a baller of reading. Hello, hey, Brandon. Hey. We've also got Jacob Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading. Hey, Nathan. How it's are me. you? I've decided to do my NPR voice today. Oh, okay. You want to yeah. talk like NPR? It's <laughs> 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 NPR. You want to talk like NPR, Brandon? <laughs> I say ASMR, Nathan. I said NPR. I haven't talked like this guy for a while. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> my old reliable character. It's going out to all the ladies that are listening. Yeah, I was unfortunately standing in my kitchen with my wife when Britney Spears made an appearance recently on our podcast, and I've never seen her look with so much disappointment at me. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we scored Spears, man. We got yeah. Spears on the podcast. That's pretty great. Yeah, I was like, come on. Isn't this awesome? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that that, yeah. that had come out. <laughs> Jake, your thoughts? You big Spears head back in the day? Mm. Hit me one more time. See, look at that. That is, that's, that's one of our songs. <laughs> Just a minute. We also, people don't realize we play blackjack while we do this podcast. So I need to hit, hit me. Hit Jake yeah. one more time. All right. So there we go. Oh, sorry, Jake. Bust. I went. House wins. Oops, I did it again. I lost that blackjack. That <laughs> <Yep>. sucks. Wow. <laughs> you, you guys are toxic. I guess I'm like a genie in a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing we learned about Jake, though, is his hips don't lie. They don't lie. Oh, brother. <laughs> Folks, Where art thou? we come from <laughs> a land from a faraway place <laughs> where the caravan camels roam. No, uh, we come from the 90s. <laughs> That's when we, we come do. from. Back. Go back to the 90s where you came from. From Wednesday you came. <laughs> My name is Nathan. Did I already? Yeah, I did. I, I burned through those introductions because I wanted to talk about to kill a mockingbird. And in that little prelude thing where I said to spill a bowl of curds so humorously, that's not really how I feel about the book. I don't think it's a bowl of curds at all. I think it's a fantastic book. and It's a bowl of nerds, if you like that candy. No, I don't. Oh. I don't know what to do for you, Nathan. I don't like that candy at all. Well, we're talking about one of the great works of American literature. <laughs> Why can't My you goodness, say it? can you say... <laughs> Why can't you not be... Sin- sneering? <laughs> This is a sincere book, and you cannot be a sincere man. A sincere man? Yeah. I want to put you on trial, Nathan. I know. Let's do it. Let's put him on trial. Okay. I'm on trial. Um, oh, well, now what? You're the Atticus Finch. Go. <laughs> well, he's going to get hung. Yeah. As he deserves. That's right. Nathan, is were you- should or there be a defense you? attorney were, here? No. You no. Two attorneys saying, both saying, I, just, I need to get hung. <laughs> no, we completely agree here. <laughs> I'm your defense, but it's more like, yeah, as he said, you know, you're a pathetic man, right? Do you agree or disagree? I don't think I deserve to be hung. When you were, when you were being insincere a moment ago, did you mean it malevolently or just uh, carelessly? Because I like both of those novel. are good reasons to get hung. I, I like this novel. Spoken I think it's like good. an insincere man. I think it might be the great American novel. Yeah, but One why should them. we trust you? From the very beginning, you've been nothing but insincere. So I think that all we have to, I mean- that's like my shtick, Brandon. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't have to sneer at great things just because mm, it's your shtick. The great American novel. Mm. <laughs> and the only thing to do with a man who has Quality. a shtick is to beat him with a stick. Speak stuff softly and carry a big shtick. Good thing I carry one. <laughs> do you carry a shtick? Whack. <laughs> Brandon's shtick is whack. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, I think the, <laughs> the the new listeners and the old ones are gone. It's just us. <laughs> we should leave too. We'll just have this See you guys. 45 minutes of blank space. <laughs> be the best podcast uh, we've done yet. <laughs> no, that's not true. All right, I'm going to say it sincerely. This is the great American novel. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, everybody. It's the great American novel. No, it Nathan, is. Nathan. What's a greater American novel? First you- question. Let's talk about it. Shut up, Brandon. <laughs> I was just going to make a point. I was going to ask, are you the kind oh. of man that really likes to dig in 
when somebody has made a point and then you just really like to dig in your counterpoint, like you'd never want to, you're stubborn that way. Huh? I dig, I dig my spade. It's a fun Stop. example of this on our Slack recently. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we all had a long conversation about the word delicious. And then you kind of can't, you saw what we were saying. And then just like five minutes later, we're texting us. Mm, mm, yum, yummy. <laughs> mm, Tolkien's paranoia. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That happened. <laughs> I was like, guys, the aesthetic contemplation of the grotesque and da 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 And they're like, Nathan, we agree, but. We just don't think you should have used the word delicious. And then I was like, mmm, delicious. <laughs> yummy, yummy. Mm, <laughs> yummy, yummy in my, in my tummy. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. You have the same arguing strategy that my fourth grade son has when he's trying to irritate his brother. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of the character that I play on this podcast. Let's face it. And apparently in our private Slack channel. <laughs> okay. We kill a mockingbird. Yes. Great American novel. Look at me. I'm so great. I'm novel. And I'm American. (laughs) True or false? Um, Uh, Wow. (laughs) It's it's in the conversation. I don't know that I'm... What else is in the conversation? Okay. Huck Finn. Huck Finn. Moby Dick. Not read it. It's a, it has to be in the conversation. Never finished it, but I agree it should be in the conversation. Um, Lots yeah. of people love to put Gatsby up there. I'm saying... Nah. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not going to put Gatsby up there. Um, I love Gatsby, but hard pass for I me. I think Gatsby's right under that it's level. Frontier, though. Yeah. yeah. The Gwaves of Wath? Nah. No. Maybe East of Eden, as far as what we've read. I don't think East of Eden is as if tight a- and controlled and masterful. But then no, if you want to say tight and controlled and masterful, you got... a. Tuck Finn, please, that last third. Well, if you, if tight, controlled, and masterful is the standard, then you have to go to Hemingway. But I don't know. Or what, to kill a mockingbird. Or to kill a mockingbird. Yeah, but Hemingway I don't know Hemingway we'd bring in. I think the old man in the sea. The old man the in the sea, man. I'd put it up there. But It's more of a novella than a novel. Yeah. Yeah, let's take it out. It's too short. In your face, Hemingway. Ha <laughs> ha. Cry me a river, boy. Yeah. I ain't, you a holla, I ain't no holla back, boy. I ain't no Heming back, boy. No. Uh, <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, people would probably want to put Scarlet Letter up there, but I'd say no, sir. <laughs> I like it fine, but no. It's. I mean, it's. Yeah, it's great. It's. It's fine. It does what it does fine, but I wouldn't want to put it up there. A novel uh, that has an entire chapter about the color white or about whale blubber for me. I like Moby Dick. Moby I, Dick's great. I've never finished Moby Dick, which tells which you. We'll have to read Moby Dick for this. Yeah, we will. Sooner I think or later. But to me. Uh, at least of the things that I've read in the last, let's say, five years. Mm-hmm. Ready Player really, One? Huh? Ready Player One. Ready Player One, To Kill a Mockingbird, and uh, Hug Finn. Those are the three contend- contenders. Can the Great American novel. be the Great American Novel? If it can, then it is. Oh, War and Peace. It's too Russian. It's, War and Peace is pretty Russian. Yeah. <sighs> I could see Anna Karenina being a Gatsby character. <laughs> I think Anna Karenina is so good that it just yeah. curb stopped and became the great American novel. <laughs> there we go. That's oh, the it's answer. It's sort of like if Javier and Volkonsky were doing what Seamus Haney did with Beowulf. True. You know, you could make that argument. We could definitely argue that's the great American translation. Okay, fine. I, I think what it's coming down to, if, if Brandon, do you want to make a serious argument for Moby Dick? Do I want to make a serious argument for Moby Dick? Yeah. I'd argue that we should table that discussion until we read Moby Dick as a group. Table the whole discussion of the Great American Novel? Or as to whether Moby Dick beats... Thus far, in terms of the American novels that the Bookening has read, yeah, it is Huck Finn and To Kill a Mockingbird, and there's not really a close third. Nope. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> Unless you want to try and argue for East of Eden. Which I don't, actually. I don't think you can. I would argue that I love East of Eden more than either one, but I wouldn't argue that it's better. I would agree yeah. with exactly that statement. That's my position too. Huck Finn loses points for its ending. Ending. It wins points for humor, for warmth in a weird way from Mark Twain of all people. We will talk today in a minute and I'm going to lead with a question about Scout and whether she's a successful child seen through an adult's ironic perspective kind of character. And you could argue, you might argue that Huck is a better character. is a better version of the precocious child that sees better than the adults kind of character. You might also argue that's garbage. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. 
I think that I could accept that Huck and Jim, Twain's Jim, are better realized characters, and the side characters are better realized characters in many ways than any of the characters in To Kill a Mockingbird and still come down in favor of To Kill a Mockingbird. That's a pretty outrageous claim. Well, To Kill a Mockingbird has the advantage of not being written by a snarky god-hater. I think that's what's going to do a lot for it, on this podcast at least. And for otherwise being relatively perfect. Mark Twain has the advantage of being something of a colossal extravagant genius in a way that uh, Harper Lee wasn't. So the best scenes in Huck are probably better than the best scenes. Way more colorful. Yeah. Vivid. There are being chased around by his his dad, his dad, or being out on the raft with Jim on the Ohio, and or the king, anything with the king and the anything Duke. with the king and the Duke, the fam- the Hatfields and the McCoys, whatever they're called, that family, all yeah. that yeah. stuff is pretty powerful. Well, there are scenes on the river with Huck that the are house. more beautiful, more intensely beautiful than anything that happens in Harper Lee's book. Mm-hmm. So, or more terrifying. Or more, yeah, or terrifying, but just I'm thinking of like the scene where he I chooses not. Thinking, when you said on the river, I went, my mind went to the dead people in the house and his dad. Yeah. yeah. But there's also the scene where he t- chooses not to give over Jim. Uh, as far as a story, here's the, here's the real argument just, There's for like Huck. one of the scenes that they're on the river and they see the lights. Mm-hmm. And it's, and mm-hmm. it's That's just, beautiful. It's just like, it's, yeah, it's just yeah. legitimately beautiful stuff. I think you could actually argue that Huck, if you really wanted to take this seriously you could argue i think that huck finn has a more powerful poignant and better portrayed moral awakening than gem or scout and it's not that theirs isn't great it's not that as a buildings roman as a a, a story of moral awakenings to kill a mockingbird isn't the best but huck's moral awakening and i dare say america's moral awakening with him is when he goes into his blasphemous rant yeah i mean True, but still. Yeah. No, I'm not trying to be snarky or undermine the point, but that is a big part of it. It, it yeah. is a huge part of it, and it's unfortunate. Yeah. But it's also, from Huck's perspective, it's, if you can get away from the twain of it all. It's very powerful. It's really powerful stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And hey, this is nice. We've got a well-rounded black character in our story about the black experience. Yeah. Good job, Mark Twain. Head of your time. Head of Harper Lee's time. fatherly, sympathetic. Yeah. Better than uh, Tom Robinson Who, gets. He's not a... A symbol or a... Yeah. <laughs> a, he's not flat. He's not just a stereo... He's more than a stereotype or feels like more than a stereotype. Yeah. You know, I might... Just in this conversation, which it's, it's weird to do this at, at the beginning of a to kill, the, to kill a Mockingbird discussion, but I want to give it to Huckleberry Finn, actually. It's imperfections, as imperfect as they are... To me, if you're saying American novel, it's like, well, what is America? America is you go out, you try something, you swing swing for the the fences, go westward, young man. Maybe you die, maybe you live. It's, you know, it's dirty, it's grungy, it's imperfect, it's not well put together, actually. But it's beautiful, and it's awesome, and it's all over the place. And there's something American even about the way that... It's written. That Huck Finn fails, actually. So I think if I if you put a gun to my head, I would choose Huckleberry Finn over To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, good. I'm going to put a gun to your head. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> you tell me now. I think I agree with that. I think that's where I would come down to. But, I mean, I think I came out of the gate on the first episode or wherever, just sort of guns blazing. If you don't think that this deserves to be in the conversation for the great American novel, it's because you're a snob. Yeah, or you just had it so thoroughly ruined by some bad high school teacher. That's the only thing I can think. Because it is a novel that... You need to come back to it as an adult. Yeah. I I can have a little sympathy for the fact that it's the sort of novel that moralistic people that don't approach novels well might abuse. Absolutely. This book here? Yeah. Well, actually, one thing I didn't mention in context is it actually has a history of having moralistic people try to get it banned. Just because of the N-word? The N-word. That and also because of the rape. That's fascinating. Yeah. And so... You couldn't name a more moral novel than this. Well, that's what she said. She said she was shocked, Harper Lee. Um, There was a quote about her saying that... um, So there's this guy who was involved with some of these censorship cases who would buy these books and give them to children if they got censored. It's like it was his way to resist. And so he bought a whole bunch of her books to kill a mockingbird and gave them to some children after this censorship case. But she said that it showed her 
like how backwards things had become and that this book that was so obviously moralistic and set in Christian ethics and morality would suddenly become attacked for its use of that word. Yeah. And so she was very surprised that that happened. But it is, it it shows, I mean, when I read it with my students, it's pretty dicey to read. You have to let let them know, you know, you don't have to say that word. You can skip it over or if you're uncomfortable, but this will be here and you just have to warn them. Also, you know, reading them with a bunch of Christian students. And so you have to also, and it didn't, it wasn't a problem, but you still have to say, you know, there's the rape stuff that's going to happen later on. And if you are uncomfortable with that, go ahead and skip the chapters or whatever. So it is interesting how our culture has changed. And so that you have to be very careful about those sorts of things. Trigger warning. Trigger warning sort of culture. Mm. I don't think I needed it quite as much as I thought I would, actually. I had a, like I had said last episode, I have a good group of AP Lit students. But anyways, uh, we are where I fall with this. So often, so I love the plot. I love structure. I love style and all that. But also uh, a novel gets me if it has like, and maybe this is me unfairly looking for poetry within a book. But if it has those moments that just really bore into me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and because of that reason, I would also give it to Huckleberry Finn, but just by just by a nose, because uh, I mean, I look back on this book. It doesn't. I don't think she ha- she's a storyteller. She doesn't have that poetic instinct, and even the, where she tries to, like when Scout is looking back and thinking about how Boo had always been watching them, there's still something that's still kind of missing as far as making that like the intense sort of poetry that I really want. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's, for example, that's one reason that I'm always going to fall on the side of War and Peace than Anna Karenina. War, Anna Karenina has those moments, but War and Peace has more of them. Mm-hmm. So, but just, again, there would just be a nose, right? Anna Karenina is right up there with War and Peace. And here, Huckleberry Finn wins out over To Kill a Mockingbird, but only a little bit. I, I think that they're both deserve the, to be there on that pedestal. It's, it's interesting to think of to kill a mockingbird in terms of poetry because you're right it doesn't have that poetry to it but there's something so elegant in this book stylistically that the elegance of the style is its own kind of poetry yeah it's not evocative and when you say it doesn't have that kind of poetry yeah. you're thinking of the imagery it's and, not thinking and, of and the evocative that's right you know out under the stars on the raft yep you know, that kind of thing. I'm thinking of those intense moments. It seems they're just yeah, vivid. You're and, just there so f- and you will never forget. Like, for example, know. Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. The moment with the cigarette and the girl that he used to know. Mm-hmm. That moment just has stuck with me. Just because I, uh, whatever I thought about the rest of the book, that's that one moment where he realizes what's going on with her father and all that. And it's just so powerful. And it's all because of that one image and the way it works. Yeah. This book doesn't have, in terms of images, you know, it's got some great scenes and things, but it's, it doesn't really have that level of evocative imagery. But I, I want to say there's a different kind of poetry about it. Well, it's the poetry I would say of master craftsmanship. Well, just the perfectly, perfectly chosen, perfect word choices for lack of a better phrase like second grade was grim there's no better way to say that there's this perfect just slight ironic distance between the scout of little girl scout and old lady scout and she's got to walk that line through the whole novel and she's really smart and you never catch her doing it but it's really hard to do and i don't even really know how to talk about it. The scene I, I sort of alluded to last time that really stuck out to me in the movie is where a little girl scout runs up and innocently calls out Mr. Cunningham and turns around the lynch mob. And I just <sighs> think that scene as conceived is maudlin, is stupid, is not what happened with most lynch mobs across history. Some cute little girl runs out. I mean, you can imagine a really, you can imagine Several really bad versions. Well, think how Dickens would have done it. Yeah, yeah I think how Dickens would have done it. Perfect, perfect way of expressing. It would have just been like, well, Scout would have been an angel for one. Scout would have been an angel, and she would have had said like the perfect things to get under Mister Cunningham's skin, which she actually does in the novel. But she's oblivious to but it. But she's oblivious to it, and it feels inevitable, and it feels like something that just happened, and that she's just telling you about. 
Well, it seems inevitable because it's, I mean, it's real. I've seen things happen with my own children that are like that. Right. And sometimes it gets them into trouble. Well, a lot of times you can't make fiction as strange as real life. People say, you know, real life is stranger than fiction. It's true. Actually, fiction has to feel like it hangs together, like it makes sense. (laughs) Real life doesn't have to feel like it hangs together and makes sense. So while scenes like the Mr. Cunningham scene do happen all the time in real life, one way or another, they're pretty hard to write because it's easy to make them seem stupid. It's even easy to make them seem contrived. There are these scenes that she makes work or hold together, but more than that, to me, it's how deftly she can switch and manipulate perspective throughout the course. And, and that's, that is how she does, does it. And you really can't catch her doing it, but just the subtle shifts in perspective of, oh, this is innocent, young, innocent scouts perspective on things. Oh, this is mature, you know, adult scouts perspective on things. Oh, this is just some gray area that we keep moving in and out of that allows her to have these ironic tones and these sarcastic tones and to do parody, but to also do her parody while playing it all with the straightest possible face. Yeah, this book is a masterpiece of of poker face. She never tells you she's joking. Like the scene I think of is with the teacher. Carolyn, Miss Carolyn. Miss Carolyn, the dumb liberal teacher who's trying these new educational models and or the tea party. Yeah, the tea party the is ladies. another masterpiece of well, this what, kind of thing. What I realized with this reading is that she's a fantastic social commenter. She's great at watching people and observing their flaws and having a certain distance between even herself and Scout as a narrative. So the person she reminded me most of was Jane Austen in that sort of free and direct style that she has where, yeah, as, as an older narrator, able to both distance herself and also then blend in her perspective with the current perspective that's happening within the story. And so that there's that kind of weird balance between old scout and young scout that's happening. Like you said, for second grade was grim. Jane Austen had reminded me of her ability to have her perspective kind of mix with her character's perspectives as well. And a kind of magical little balance. You're right. Well, and I hate to say this, but I, I think she's more artful though, because young, especially immature, less mature, I shouldn't say immature, but less mature, Jane Austen that wrote the novels that everybody loves, like Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice, she's always winking. And it's delightful. She's good at it. But she's always like, she doesn't have a poker face. She's like, this character was dumb. Let me tell you. (laughs) And Harper Lee, she's great at never doing that. Yeah, she never never just says, Miss Carolyn was dumb. Like Jane Austen would roast Miss Carolyn and it would be hilarious and it would be awesome. Yeah. But she wrote, she manages to roast Miss Carolyn, while doing that wonderful comedian's trick of seeming to never want to roast Miss Carolyn. That's just the way Miss Carolyn was. It didn't quite work. And we as readers get it. Atticus gets it. Little Scout doesn't get it. Big Scout does get it. And she's able to play all those things masterfully such that it doesn't seem like she's striving for effect. She's not being nasty. No. She's not. Well, it allows her to be pretty deft at not shoving anything down your throat. Mm-hmm. Well, it, so. it's also something that Speaking of, Twain loved to do through a character like Huck Finn. Right. But he would just, if if Austin would get a kick out of winking at you, Twain would just go nasty. Yeah. Right. right? And rub your nose in it. Yeah. You know, Austin winks, Twain smirks. Here's Huckleberry Finn. He doesn't understand your God. I mean, that's really, not to be blasphemous, but that's what Twain's doing. That's about the level of what he does things on. And Lee, she's just staring at you blankly. Well, right. With a sweet little smile on her face. Well, well yeah, yeah, even the final question of the book, was it right to not prosecute Boo Radley, mm-hmm. right? And so like, that's a when you really try to think through that. So my students didn't even have any issue with it until I said, you guys think through this. Is it right that they didn't prosecute Boo Radley? And so we had this long discussion as to what in the world was she trying to do there at the end? And it a, it's really, it's gray, but... I think she intentionally leaves it gray, but you do kind of get with, so like the sheriff is the one who, so it still is an authority that's telling Atticus to quiet down. And so there are ways to go with it that are interesting, but still um, it allows her to deal with that reality that even now we're all dealing with, with like the COVID restrictions, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of grayness to this, that a lot of morality is not as clear cut as we want it to be. 
that there's a lot of responsibility and discernment that goes into it that's not easy. And even when you make a choice, sometimes you're not quite certain you've made the right choice. And I mean, if maybe one, it, it fits with what, I mean, we'll be seeing that with the Lord of the Rings, right? With sure. uh, Aragorn worried always about whether or not he's made the right choice. Yeah. But here it's, um, she leaves it open and she doesn't give you those answers, but she does let you feel the weight of it. And the part of that comes through her, her narrative position. So, yeah. Well, that kind of brings us to the first. What I want to do is address three criticisms in this podcast. And we'll talk more about Atticus Finch, the Atticus of it all next time, and the, the scout of it all next time. But I'm sure, I'm sure we'll touch on it more as we go. But did we not want to do baggage? I know we're not doing baggage. I don't think we nobody should. Nobody has any baggage for nobody, this book. Nobody brings any baggage. I mean, the thing about us is we're, Brandon's a rampaging racist. I think that's his baggage. Yes, you better believe it. Especially hates Hawaiians. I do. Jake and loves all races. He does. Mm. 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons. Yep. Sprints. Sprints. Yep. His phone is Sprint. That's right. He loves those races. He loves races. Yep. There goes the baggage plane. Oh, boy. I guess we do have to do baggage. Oh, too bad. <laughs> oh, man. I can't believe we're going to cut off all that rich mine of gold we were mining there <laughs> with our Harper Lee-like wit. Now, <laughs> and, and oh. the poker face of the bookening, we never let people know when we're kidding. The baggage plane has flown over. People heard the sound effect, or people heard the actual sound of a plane going over, because we do record in an open air That's right. type situation. There's no roof. At an airbase. At an airbase. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what Brandon calls airports. <laughs> Let's go to the airbase. <laughs> Terminology that everyone uses, the airbase. Now, uh, <laughs> is that what military airbase? I'm Come playing on. an airbase right now. You're so cute, Nathan. I am cute. <laughs> Let's talk about our baggage. Thank you for reminding me, Jake. I can't believe I was just going to forget to do that. It's because this book is so much fun to talk about it. We started talking about it before I could even get to it. Uh, Jake, what baggage do you bring to this book? I don't remember if I actually read this book or not. This might have been your first time? This might have been my first time actually reading it. But you knew the story. You knew what was going to happen. Oh, yeah. I knew the story. I think that's why I don't know if I've read it or not. I've seen the movie. I knew the story. I knew the plot. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't remember actually reading it or not I just a blank space in my mind i don't have if i read it i think i must have read it begrudgingly i suspect i never read it because it would have been in high school and it would have been that period of time where i was refusing to read anything that was assigned so i think this might have been my first time reading it cool that's good i mean it's bad that you didn't read it back then but yeah fun experience to have now yeah i mean either way the story and book they sure hold up and they sure work really well as an adult and as a father of a 12-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter. Yeah. You're a little scouting gem. A little oh. scouting gem. A little yeah. scouting gem. Brandon, what baggage do you bring to this? <laughs> I know you like to leave little toys <laughs> yeah. in tree trunks for children. <laughs> yeah, Nathan. All the time. <laughs> oh, I love you, Nathan. <laughs> just like Robert Duvall. Yeah, just like Robert Duvall. I'd look just like him, too. Brandon does look like, if you imagine Robert Duvall uh, crossed with the Goodyear blimp. That's Brandon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Nathan. Nathan. Crossed with the deflated Goodyear blimp. Thank you. It's still pretty big. (laughs) Uh, Your baggage, Brandon. My baggage. I've read this book a number of times. This is probably my fifth or sixth time to read it. Mm -hmm. I first read it, I think, in middle school. And my introduction before that to the story was with my grandmother watching the movie. It was one of her favorites. And I remember it was, it was over at her night. Uh, how, I was over at her night one house. Mm-hmm. It was over at her house one night. <laughs> <laughs> and she wanted to watch it with me. So we watched it and I loved the story. With my dad's mom, my other side of the family, we had, read, we had watched a lot of um, Andy Griffith. Mm-hmm. And so it reminded me of the gritty Andy Griffith. <laughs> That's really what it <laughs> gritty was. Gritty reboot. Yeah, gritty reboot of Andy Griffith. <laughs> And so I loved it, and I loved it that my grandmother loved it. It meant a lot watching the movie with her. I've loved the story ever since then. Atticus Finch was a hero of mine in early high school. I Your children all call you Brandon. Yeah, that's right. I briefly thought about going into law just because I loved that scene of him in the courthouse so much. And so, yeah, 
His I've children. got a, his, you played that so straight. His children don't call him Brandon. Oh, yeah. They don't <laughs> call me Brandon. <laughs> you had a Harper Lee like <laughs> poker face there. <laughs> I think it worked against you. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. So you wanted to be a lawyer? Wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. I've, and then, you know, you grow out of that and you realize more of the complexities of the story as you get older. And coming back to it this time, it was fun because you get to have that added layer of having children and realizing how much of a failure, even though he is a good man, how much of a failure still Atticus Finch is. Mm-hmm. So well, we'll definitely pick up that thread next podcast. My baggage is, I don't know. I've read this book before. I don't remember how old I was. I don't think it was for a high school class. I think I just read it because it was, you know, on the list. I liked it. I remember liking it. I think I've had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder towards this book. I wasn't really excited to do it this year. I loved it. Like, it took me two pages to fall back in love with it. But I feel like I've had to read so many books like this that I I, I don't really care for the small town, southern, mid-century genre. People may remember the Mysterious Phantom had to show up for our episode on whatever that book is called. Gilead. Gilead. This is not my favorite thing. Yeah. I mean, I do feel nostalgia, fake nostalgia, because I never lived in a small town. But I do have kind of, I do have, you know, I can watch like an episode of Andy Griffith and get the feels for that time and place. But so many of these stories feel so maudlin and so predict- predictable that. Yeah. And I think that it also, we didn't talk about this yet, but I think it has the patina of being one of those school books. Yeah, it does. So this is fun. We've now read two school books this year that we turn that come to find out we actually like them more than we thought we might. What was the other? Oh, Johnny Tremaine. Johnny Tremaine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's what I thought about coming back to this book too was it's got that one school book thing into righteous virtue signaling. It feels like vegetables a little bit. Crusading. Like, oh boy, this is going to be good for me. Great. This is, yeah, this is, I'm supposed to read this because that was a great message or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, it didn't take but the first two pages for me to be like, whoop, hey, and... Yeah, it's a great book and it doesn't take, yeah, just about to repeat the thing that I said that Jake said that for a fourth, fifth time, which is it just doesn't take long to hook you and get you in. It's It's better than that. But yeah, coming at it from a distance of some years, I did approach it with some trepidation as... Oh, just one of those memoirs of small town life, which is just not my favorite thing in the world. You know, this is the kind of thing that ends up on your the Oprah list is a book that I, I tend to be prejudiced ooh, against those books. I'm, I'm the Tom Ewell of <laughs> books about small town life. Like, oh, oh boy. You know, it's funny. I don't know that I've ever read a book like that that I haven't liked, though. So did you I, read East of Eden because it was on Oprah's list? Yeah. I did. Because it was? No, my mom had it because it was on Oprah's list, and then I read it. So almost any book, with the exception of Gilead, that kind of takes place in this time and place. I think we're finding out that Oprah has good taste. I mean, she must be doing something right. She's doing all right for herself, that Oprah. (sighs) Okay, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it, guys. Hey. I don't know how much more time we have in this episode, but... Speaking of books... Yeah. Should Charlotte's Web be in the conversation for Great American Novel? Yeah, it went. Oh, okay, there we go. In your face. <laughs> Great, I'm glad we're done with that. Let's move on. <laughs> I really think Tumblr of the Swan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Great American Novel. Oh, boy. Uh, Charlotte's Web definitely is in conversation for best children's book. Yeah. Which, let's pick up this thread. There's a lot of threads from what we've already talked about that we could pick up, but I wanted to bring some criticisms against this novel that people have made. And let me start with our old friend, Flannery O'Connor. Hey, look, Brandon actually offered a little bit of a transition into this. Yes, you did, Brandon. She wrote in a letter, and I quote, For a children's book, it does all right. It's interesting that all the folks that are buying it don't know they're reading a child's book. Somebody ought to say what it is. Unquote. Boy, does that sound like something that I would say when I don't like something that's popular. And Jake's like, why don't you just like the latest Marvel movie, Nathan? And I'm like, 
Because people need to understand it's not actually good. I yeah. mean, it's like, it's why fun, you, but it's not, like, fun. it's not good, good. Why don't, why don't you like Stranger Things, Nathan? Well, people don't realize that it's just a ripoff of Stephen King and people have already done this. Yeah, and I actually talk in that voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, like, it's not actually like the good. Maybe it's okay for children and teenagers. Right, like, <laughs> maybe people are too stupid to like Stephen King. There's yeah. a lot of morons out there. They'll probably like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Or actually, not just like it, but, uh, you know, pay and get it. The subscriptions to right. get this. <laughs> well, Netflix is actually getting subscriptions to their services because people want to watch Stranger Things. <laughs> so there's Flannery O'Connor. Maybe I should reread it in, in that voice. <laughs> For a children's book, it does all right. It's interesting that all the folks that are buying it don't know they're reading a child's book. Somebody ought to say what it is. People could be buying <laughs> adult books. But they don't. <laughs> well, obviously, they don't even know what they're reading. So how could they be discerning enough to know what's good? Scout and Finn should have been taken into the woods and shot at the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Made it better. I think I just figured by, out what that... By Tom Robinson's zombie <laughs> so, <right. yeah>. corpse. <laughs> so on, last, uh, on the last episode, we, t- we started off by giving that one author that we now have now forgotten his name already. <laughs> Tom Muholland or whatever. Oh, Tom Mellon. Thomas yeah. Mellon. Thomas Mellon. Mellon. Yeah. yeah. How do you say it? I think now we realize what his problem is too. Nobody ride, reads his books or buys them, <laughs> and yet Harper Lee's still selling millions of copies a year. <laughs> Which I get that a little bit. I mean, when everybody thinks something's great, it is worth asking more questions of it. When when the whole world loves Stranger Things, I submit to you, it's worth saying, why does everybody love Stranger Things? So Thomas Mellon, I have thrown you a bone. Yeah, you- just because something's popular doesn't mean it's great. But yeah. also because it's popular doesn't mean that it's garbage. No. So writing, but, writing something off or accepting it based on its popularity is stupid in either direction. No, but I, I, I agree with that a million percent. But because it's popular, it does mean you have to deal with it one way or another. Right. And I think it also means it's worth holding it to a high standard in some ways. It matters whether Harry Potter is good in a way that it doesn't matter whether a children's book that no one's heard of is good. Yeah, J.K. Rowling has a responsibility to be good, I would argue, in a way that Howl's Moving Castle doesn't. And her failures are significant. Right. And so that doesn't mean that I have to be a snob about Stranger Things or that Flannery needs to be a snob about. But I I do think it's worth interrogating things that are considered to be great. Now, having said that, let's deal with the quote. For a children's book, it does all right. It is interesting that all the folks that are buying it don't know they're reading a child's book. Somebody ought to say what it is. Well, Miss. And, uh, yeah, that's what I said on our. I mean, before the show started, if if it's a children's book, it's in a class with E.B. White and is better than anything that Flannery O'Connor ever wrote, anyway. Yes, true. So, <laughs> and sold more copies. <laughs> I to say that it's a child's book. I don't care what you say. It's a great book. I don't think it is a child's book. Well. For the reason that somebody like Flannery O'Connor would say that is because it's not dark enough for her. Like it doesn't ha- deal with, uh, you know. How many more rapes do you need? I mean, it's <laughs> it's pretty dark. How many more murders and? But it's not gritty enough. You know, it's, it's, it's that there dumb, a... stupid, immature idea that to be gritty and gross and to to roll around in the darkness is to be mature and adult. And it's not. It's like, oh, I know. What we need to do with Superman is give him over to Zack Snyder and he'll make him gritty and adult and mature. That's not actually true. Okay, I'm going to tip my hand and say, well, I hope I don't have to tip my hand, folks. Of course, I agree with Jake 100%, but let me play devil's advocate here. Small town life actually wasn't like that. There wasn't a white sheriff that covered up for a guy that murdered a white man who was trying to get revenge for a black man. Tom Robinson was definitely... The white man was not getting revenge for a black man. The white man was protecting children. Right, but no small town Southern sheriff ever did what the sheriff in this one is. There weren't any Atticus Finches. And, well, I'm playing the devil here, Brandon. (laughs) Don't don't tear my apartment. I'm asking the devil how he would know that. (laughs) Instead, there were people that randomly drove around shooting children. Brandon, in last episode's context, managed to read a poem about a lynching for some reason. That's our past. Not this idyllic little Mayberry of a town with... Wait, well, wait, wait, wait. What do you mean? We have an innocent man who gets... Yeah, this poem is dealing with that. That's that why I read that everybody poem. Everybody knows 
is innocent, gets convicted of murder because he's black and goes away to prison and everybody yeah. is struggling to, everybody's making their peace with it and nobody makes sense. Like That's, and the, that's the reason I read that poem is because it fits exactly into what this book is saying. Well, and all the good people in the community rally around Atticus and send him food. And actually, all of all our- All the good black people in the community. All of our hero, all of our- Nobody, everybody all of else our reader, Atticus and his whole family through the mud. All of our reader surrogates are good in a way that Harper Lee's father wasn't actually good. He was more like the Atticus of Go Tell Washman. This book, lets, this really book lets us all off the hook collectively as readers in a way that only a children's book could and that's why it's a children's book because it's got a dumb moral for little kids that don't understand how dark and depraved the world really is. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, it doesn't load us off the hook because it never really resolves whether or not any of the it never really resolves the moral questions of the book. It just leaves them out there. Makes you it, wrestle with them. Yeah, it doesn't tell you whether the book does it doesn't not tell, tell you, you whether or not Atticus is even good. He seems pretty good. He's yeah. he's a distant father. He's, he's a hands-off father who has... And his kids realize that too. I mean, yeah, there are certain strong attributes to Atticus, but still his children see these things about him. I mean, you guys might say that on your conservative Christian podcast, like, oh no, Atticus never spanked his kids. But no, it's, it's... by any liberal standard, by the standard of most of... Harper Lee's readers around the world and parents that were reading Dr. Spock and all that stuff at the same time. He's a great father. No, I don't think that's true. I think that he's pretty distant. And from what I've seen from my liberal friends on Facebook, the one thing they don't believe in is being distant. They're very involved with the macaroni crafts with their kids. Nobody likes a helicopter parent, though. Nobody likes a helicopter parent, but all these parents are like, you know, I'm going to Make sure that I'm the moral compass for my children. I'm directing their creativity and all this. And yeah, because Finch, w- Finch wouldn't sit by his children in church. He let them develop their creativity. I don't think he ever once thought of it that way. I <laughs> think Atticus thought, "Don't bother me, and I won't bother you." An awful lot of the time. Okay, you guys are missing the point, though, which is that the book is idealized. Gem and Scout by who? By the writer of the book, Harper Lee. Jem and Scout are precocious little brats that basically always do the right thing and are really innocent and don't have the prejudices of their time. Actually, I think they rarely do the right thing, right? I mean, Jem is always messing things up, but he still gets the lessons. It is like when he, what is that one lady's that he has to go to her house? Forget her name. He has to go and sit and read to her. While she dies. They go into the courtroom when they're not supposed to be there. Yeah, we're not supposed to feel balcony. bad about that. They, they save their dad from a lynch mob. They make friends with Boo Radley, who's, who's a great guy and is eventually going to save the day. They actually kind of they like- go up to Boo Radley's back porch and- Get shot at. And the only reason they make friends with him is because- like, That's exactly every... what the Goonies would do. It's like an Amblin entertainment kind of. These, these kids are like the Spielbergia kids. They well, just do whatever they want and they get away with it because- they're awesome. Wow, you've made such an awesome, compelling case. <laughs> well, Jake, that's what someone that doesn't have a single argument against it would say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing this to torture us. I'm doing it because I've read articles that say this about To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm it's... representing a real point of view on this book here, as dumb as it might be. And it is dumb. Please, I hope nobody thinks I'm making these arguments with any ounce of sincerity. People say this is an idealized Mayberry kind of a... I mean, so two points. This would, People who say that one must have forgotten what Andy Griffith was like, because that is an idealized Mayberry, and this is not anywhere near that. I mean, people would have been scandalized and Mayberry to have had to live in this town. Make them. So, no, that's wrong. Two, you always have to remember that this is also, this is supposed to be from a little girl's perspective. There's always that layer of complexity added to the story in that we're getting it from Scout's perspective. And so even like, so there's that one guy that they meet at the courthouse lawn, the the drunk. Everybody thinks he's he's a drunk. drunk. Yeah. And so all of this is, is, but it's all still from her point of view. And as a storyteller, she's giving us, and if that makes it a child story, okay. I mean, to be honest, Flannery O'Connor's story, The Turkey, was 
pretty simple and childish in that sense because it's from a child's point of view. Um, he ends up thinking he's being chased by a ghost up the hill when he runs home at the end of the story. I mean, so saying that it's chi- that ma- that makes it childish just because it's from a child's point of view it d- doesn't hold any water for me. Leonard O'Connor is actually an interesting comparison because she is so simplistic in the way she portrays. Here's yeah. a family of idiots, and they're going to get killed by the, grotesque, the psychopath. Does, yeah, yeah, it's 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 really simple. There's there's not a lot of shades of gray. Yeah, and so I guess since it has no irony and it has and it's not participating in what she would consider the Iowa Workshop short story style, which re- I mean that makes it a child story, okay, uh, whatever. But um, it has all the elements of novels that preceded it, which in my book makes it a novel and not just a children's story. Even if that, I mean, I don't, I'm with Lewis there. I don't necessarily know that's a really a criticism. Or even so, a valid category. Or even maybe. a valid category. Yeah, exactly. So you can have, in other words, you can have children's stories that aren't just for children. Yeah. And so, yeah, this ha- this deals with childish things in the sense that it's in from a child's point of view, but it's still, I mean, that's like trying to the say the- that- that's like trying to say the river is a children's story. Right. The fact that O'Connor would think that that is a diss, that she yeah. has put the novel in its place is more telling about O'Connor than it is about the book. I think that it's telling, I mean, I think that it shows that O'Connor really, what she wanted was the sort of irony and what she would consider complicated, lofty style. It's the Iowa work, is what she would have learned at the Iowa workshop. And that if it doesn't have that, then she was jealous that this thing had had the success that it did. She didn't quite understand it because she was in that new, she was never published in the New Yorker, but she was still in that New Yorker circle. Those people that were, for better or worse, really dominating American literature at that time, as far as, I mean, so in the experiment and criticism, Lewis makes a fascinating point, or he, not fascinating, it's just, I mean, it's the point that with modernism, mm-hmm. we always go back to modernism, but there was a split between intellectual art versus popular art. She was more in that intellectual art and so people who like even like what you were saying earlier the whole well it's not a real story right it's uh it's not really doing things that are when people are saying that they're comparing it to like you know in filmmaking what is it ingmar bergman those guys that that people that nobody actually watch and enjoy (laughs) except for the aesthetic and i'm doing quotation marks pretty heavily around that and we know people like even today we know people that like love David Lynch and those kind of directors. And really there's a lot of, there is great beauty in some of that stuff, but there is also a lot of navel gazing narcissism in that class as well. All that to say that really only sells to those people. And it's a very small group. And so of course, someone in that category would look at someone in the other category that's getting a lot of success. Like it's Martin Scorsese criticizing the Marvel movies, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It does feel like that. Well, it just, it's hard not to, it's hard not to put the worst spin on it when he says, when she says, it's interesting that all the folks that are buying it, like, that just seems like sour grapes. It's hard not to read that as sour grapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I agree. And I'm probably the closest this group has to someone who would still defend Flannery O'Connor, but. I like Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. Just fine. It'll be, I do too, but I don't have patience for her slamming a masterpiece of American literature over sour grapes. And it absolutely does not surprise me at all. She was a lot like what Jane Austen would have been had Jane Austen not chilled out. Yeah. And had no, so, she had no sense of humor yeah. about herself or anyone else. Well, Jake, you're being pretty quiet. Is it because you were defeated, so devastated by my devil's advocacy that now you feel like you need to get, never read this book again, wounds, lick yeah. your wounds and throw this book in the fire? Yep. Got me. It's definitely what he looks like. He's just over there crying. Yeah. <laughs> Jake is crying right now. He just pulled out a violin. Looks like he's ready to move on to the next criticism. <laughs> I think that he's just so tired of listening to this one, <laughs> which I kind of am too. <laughs> uh, was there something in particular you wanted to say in regards to this one? No, I think it's a dumb criticism. Yeah. Why? Because it's self-evidently dumb. Well, that's that's the kind of thing that somebody would say. I didn't have an argument. <laughs> ah. Oh no! Oh, wasted on your own petard. If I wanted to make space for the criticism, the Mister Cunningham scene is it for me. That scene is borders on maudlin or Dickensian or something like a little girl's going to talk down a lynch mob. Okay, so why don't I think that 
this book even comes close to falling into that trap, even in that scene, which I love that scene. Yeah. Um, well, it's because it, it does that sort of scene without having all the sappy unreality. When someone can do that sort of thing, because those sorts of things happen. Yeah. It's just such a okay, simplistic so. take and read of the novel, and it fails to, this is a whole other, it's just stupid. It's just so stupid. It is hard to put into words how stupid that kind of take is. And it, it's because you have to be a certain kind of, you have to be so committed to a stupid, s- flat, simplistic reading of absolutely everything in this book. Mm-hmm. You have to have decided that it's stupid. You have to have come to it and decided that it's stupid and sentimental and maudlin and yes. silly. And then you have to read it in the flattest way possible. If you're going to come to this book that way, you're going to miss watching the fiddler dance on the roof for 300 pages and it's, not it's, fall. it's basically bad faith criticism it's like yeah it's sending the classical music guy to review a rock concert it's like he doesn't like it because he just doesn't he wasn't prepared to like it yeah that's and what right. are you supposed to say that to that except for well i guess you don't like rock and roll but that was zeppelin dude like and of course then they're going to come back well you know bach and beethoven and chopin zeppelin doesn't hold a candle to them and so let me play stairway to heaven for you i mean that's that's really all you can do i mean i want to flip it around and say it's more like taking the punk rock connoisseur and sending them to a bach concert they don't have the tools to understand they're just like it's just you know where the words at (laughs) (laughs) that's like that's like you know how can i how can i be moved if it doesn't have words if it's not spelling it out and making it feel dark or or making it feel like if it's not like tipping, it's like, well, you know what? It was just that much of a masterpiece. You never saw all the things that she, you didn't have the capacity to either just sit and enjoy it for what it is or to enjoy it on the level of crafts, craftsmanship Yeah, mm-hmm. that it is as an absolute masterpiece of skillful craftsmanship. I mean, this book is almost perfect to me, almost every way. It's so clean. It's so, it's got its insights. It's got its social commentary. It's got, I mean, I, I, I know we're going to come around and talk about Atticus, but I mean, I, I spent most of this book on the verge of tears at how terrible and awesome Atticus is and yeah. how. And how a lot of fathers probably look the same way to their children. Yeah. Terrible and awesome at the same time. Yeah. Atticus, Atticus is awful. He sucks yeah. so bad and he's so great. And what a great little book for processing your dad and your family and your American upbringing through. Yeah. While we were sitting here, somebody texted me and said, I'm just finishing To Kill a Mockingbird and making a note to reread it when my oldest son turns 12. Thanks for suggesting it. In your face, Flannery O'Connor. Nobody nobody making a note about that. Yeah. Yeah. Remind me to read this when my family's murdered by a psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) When I'm taking a trip with my family down to Tennessee. Yeah. And the other way she does it, she avoids that maudlin stuff is that with scenes with children, it's very easy to either make them worse or a lot better than they are. To actually accurately portray children is pretty hard. And so the fact that the way that she deescalates the situation is just by going in and being completely oblivious to it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's pretty accurate because, I mean, it shows you that she understands children. I mean, I can't tell you how many times my children have just been completely oblivious to something that's going on mm-hmm. and yep. just sort of stumble into doing something. Mm-hmm. And so I have multiple situations in mind right now, but it's just, it's, it's true. It's just accurate. And that's how writers avoid being maudlin and sentimental. Those things are called, those things are definitionally exaggeration. Right. So they avoid it by just being, not being exaggerated. So, yeah, I mean, to hold this book to any kind of a standard of what was small town life like, actually, what were we, it's, it misses the entire point. It's not about that. It's about what Harper Lee's experience was and what Scout's experience was. And that's the story. And those kinds of implausible situations like Mr. Cunningham do happen all the time. Yeah. I think a okay writer can't write a scene like that because they need everything to be boring because they can't capture the implausible nature of real life. Mm-hmm. But a great writer, you know, like a Shakespeare, a Shakespeare can have all kinds of coincidences in, a, in one of his plays and crazy contrivances. 
because he's just that good yeah to capture the fact that life as god creates it is really does work out that is way full sometimes. of crazy coincidences you know kismet all that stuff karma uh karma karma yeah <laughs> bad pronunciation of the word karma i apologize folks mm, i think that's enough of discussion for this week we'll come back we still have two criticisms to go. Plus, we still need to. We do need to talk about a lot about Atticus. Are we going to get four episodes out of this baby? Maybe. Whoa! I kind of want to because we've done four episodes for like things that deserve it less. If not this, what, Brandon? I don't know. What have we done four episodes yeah. for? Things that we weren't as good as uh, back when we weren't as good as when words we could not talk as well as we were. Oh, them times. Were now, today, yes, then? words. Yes. Yeah. We we be good at words now. Yeah, better. Speaking of which, more, we talk pretty. More, more better. Me yeah. talk pretty one day. One day, yeah. Okay, speaking of which, I'd like you guys to talk pretty as I read a list of our donors that give us money. Boy, wow. <laughs> I, I can't do words. Ooga. Ooga booga. Okay. <laughs> what I was trying to say there, folks, man, wow. People there are who give money to us. Yeah. We like very much. <laughs> Yeah, people give us money. They go to patreon.com forward slash the booketing. They do it. If they give us at least $10, they become part of a little segment on the show called Donor Shoutouts, where we shout them out. Hey. Hey, that's what we're supposed to do. What I'd like you to do, guys to do, and I bet this will be hard, is I'd like to alternate between Brandon and Jake, and I'd like you to each say a sentence that does not make grammatical sense. Okay. Oh, no. It could be about anything. Oh, but Brandon, this is gonna be great. I can't do this. this. Is gonna be, you were just doing it naturally. It's too late. <laughs> this is gonna be great. It's gonna be great. It's too late. No, it's it's just perfectly late. Uh, let's see here. So, let's start with Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Brandon, late in night. Two is. Dreadful Anthony Dodger, Jake. Thirteen nearly was he when Jim brother my got arm his badly broken elbow at the. Strangely, that sentence made a decent amount of sense. <laughs> <laughs> Little Anthony Cigar Store, Brennan. Me no smoky <laughs> you cigar. I don't know, Nathan. Me no smoky you cigar. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Speaking of racism. <laughs> uh, the immortal Chelsea E. Healed it when in fears of Jim never able to being football play were assuaged. Seldom self-conscious was he his injury about. Jimmy Beam mm. and the Lanny Oakley. Whiskey sour, sweet no more. Lily of the Valley. Somewhat arm left was his his right shorter than he or when stood walked hand of his the back right <laughs> to this is a long sentence. <laughs> I'm just gonna stop it right there. Yeah, it worked. Internet to the lovebirds. Birds in nest eggs of trees. <laughs> you know, I hate this conceit. <laughs> Let's drop it. <laughs> the rare <laughs> booketing. Nathan's calling an audible. Is audible, that what I want? Yeah, yeah I'm going to call an audible on this dumb conceit. <laughs> that sucks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome, listeners. I thought it was going splendidly. <laughs> I was just, you know, I had a book in front of me, so I was, I was. I'm good. glad that I'm the one who broke you, Nathan. Uh, <laughs> um, Jake kind of had me pretty pre-broken with that last <laughs> sentence. All right, Brandon, you say the word Dracula. Jake, you say the word Frankenstein. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Keith Master. Frankenstein. Uh, David's Mighty Men Trucking. Dracula. John and Jill's Little Baby Max. Frankenstein. Jay and Katie, you are cold and love cheese, and also C.S. Liz, including Fra- Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Fairy Mother of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Dracula. Man, this is going so much better. Console Prime Adam. Frankenstein. Dracula. 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 <laughs> oh, <laughs> you had one job. <laughs> oh, boy. Frankula. <laughs> Jeremy, the Dark Hooded Lord of Death. Frankula. <laughs> Nathan, not me. Frankenstein. Maya. Maya. Dracula. I'm not going to mess it up. Ryan, the Red Avenger, and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Dracula. Danny the Dracula. Dracula. DJ Dracula. 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 Eric and Dracula. 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 Professor and Lady X. Dracula. 
Lavender's green, green draggy draggy lavender's blue. Lavender's green, Dylan Dylan. I love you too. No, Dracula. I'm going to get him to mess up, guys. Okay. Uh, round three. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Dracula. Rachel. <laughs> Rachel. 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 Dracula. Frankenstein. Leopard Dink Thomas. Dracula. Midnight Ninja Allen. Dracula. Queen Kinketa. Dracula. Return of the Jedediah. Dracula. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Dracula. Dracula. Eric and Kate, the Camp Jack. Dracula. Maddie, 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 Dracula. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Frankenstein. Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness. Dracula. And Laura, the Keeper of Eternal Light. Dracula. Cold Steel Cody. Dracula. Stein. Jacqueline, the Librarian Barbarian. Dracula. John Bombadillo Bomb Diggity. Dracula. Captain Tennille, his mate. Dracula. Saxophone Alex. Dracula. Okay. I'm glad I went back and edited in that part where I told them to say Dracula and Frankenstein so people won't know they were about that horrible argument they were having about their favorite characters in literature <laughs> i think i won <laughs> yeah oh man about about Thanks, what the true truly greatest american novel was <laughs> uh, uh, i know who the true monster is nathan <laughs> yep uh it's dracula all right let's be done frankenstein <laughs> Uh, Book of the Day, written and produced by Dracula, performed by Frankenstein, and uh, go to booking dot or no 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 go to patreon.com forward slash Frankenstein. <laughs> and, no, I shouldn't mess that up. It's uh, patreon.com forward slash the booking. Give us money. We love you. Goodbye. Lots of it.